Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Last Tuesday, the Times Home Affairs editor, Matt Dathan, found himself working long into the night. It was a bit of a waiting game, really. Hour by hour, edging towards the flight taking off. We were just talking to both sides, really, talking to the Home Office, talking to the campaigners as well, and just trying to get an idea of the legal arguments for and against and the likelihood of it taking off. Sounds like a frantic day in Westminster. It was definitely a frantic evening, yes. We actually only got confirmation that the flight was going to be grounded at 10pm, which was very much past our deadline for first edition in normal times, but we managed to hold back the paper until about quarter past 10 to make sure that we had the latest developments and the fact that the flight would not be taking off for Rwanda. The plane in question, a Boeing 767, had been stood on the tarmac at a military base in Wiltshire for hours. It normally seats 375 passengers, but this plane had been chartered for just seven people. Why was that flight grounded? And what does it mean for the government's flagship immigration policy? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, one-way ticket to Rwanda, how the government's asylum plan was put on ice. Good evening, it's nine o'clock. Kate Borsay here on Times Radio with you through until 10. It should have been a triumphant day for the government, a major step in their pledge to take back Britain's borders and crack down on people smuggling. But that evening, the country watched and waited to find out if the maiden flight for the government's controversial plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda would actually take place. Uh, and we're really lucky now. I must say a, a big thank you to uh, Guillaume Baker, who is a photographer for The Times and is currently at Boscombe down in Amesbury. Good evening, Guillaume. Hi, good evening. Uh, Guillaume, tell me. A, yeah. go, go on. Uh, just as I'm probably here in the background, um, what we think are the passengers are just boarding now, so it's quite a sensitive moment. <laughs> yeah. It would appear this plane will be deploying this evening. The engines have started up, and I, we're guessing it's going to roll off up the, um, the airstrip shortly. The plane, being photographed, sitting on the tarmac with its engines running, had been at the centre of fierce legal battles. The case would go up to the highest court in Europe before the day was done. But this wasn't a last-minute scrap. There had been days of skirmishes before the final battle. 
So the previous Friday, uh, the High Court held a hearing on an application for an injunction against the flight taking off. Campaigners brought a judicial review case to the High Court. A judicial review is like a court case where someone challenges the lawfulness of a government decision. This review, and its timing, would underpin the whole operation to stop the flight. So Friday at about 6.25, in a very packed courtroom, it was courtroom one in the High Court, Mr Justice Swift, the High Court judge, ruled that there was a material public interest in the government of the day carrying out its policy, and he said that the flights should be lawfully allowed to take off until the full judicial review was heard, and he set a timetable for that judicial review as the end of July. So, just to clarify, that judgment wasn't the seal of approval for this policy at all? Absolutely not. It was just a seal of approval for the government continuing its policy until a full judicial review is heard on the policy next month. The campaigners had managed to secure a judicial review, but they lost their fight in the High Court to stop the first plane from taking off. So they took their case to the Court of Appeal last Monday, but the three judges there found no reason to go against the High Court's decision. Not willing to give up, on the morning the flight was scheduled, the case went up to the Supreme Court. That appeal was rejected too. But the campaigners had also lodged individual appeals for the people waiting to be deported, and there they had more luck. As the day wore on, a number were removed from the flight. On Friday, the number was, I think, 31. I mean, that had already been whittled down, actually from around about 130 people. So Tuesday morning, seven people due to be on the flight. These seven people who are due to be on board this flight going to Rwanda, do they start preparing them for it? Are they gathering them up, getting them ready to board? Yes, that's right. Four of them had actually boarded the flight that evening. We think that six of the seven had been taken to the airfield and we think one of them had remained at one of the immigration detention centres that are used to hold people before they are removed. People were seen getting on board, the pilots and the stewards were getting on board the plane, and it looked to any observer that this flight was very much being prepared to take off. And then what happened? Well, the, so the takeoff time was 10.30pm, and at 6.25pm, I received a text from the Home Office saying that the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg had intervened to grant an injunction against one of the migrants being removed. And that was actually the moment when I think the dominoes started to fall. And what, what exactly had that injunction been based on? I mean, was this, uh, was this about the legality of the policy that the Home Office was implementing or was it about a particular case? How did they manage to stop the flight? It's all very much still quite shrouded in secrecy. The individual was an Iraqi national and he, uh, we are told, appealed to the ECHR. They published a very short decision that basically said that uh, the Iraqi national should not be removed from the UK until three weeks after judicial review was given. We believe that the decision was based on uh, the individual's claim that he would face uh, removal from Rwanda 
if they did not accept his claim for asylum there, and if he was going to be removed from Rwanda, he feared, he argued, that he would be he would face persecution in Iraq. And at least one migrant lodged a last-minute submission claiming that they were a victim of modern slavery. Therefore, the Home Office had to then assess that claim and take them off the plane. Do we know very much about their personal cases and how they've ended up in that situation? Do we know the nationalities of some of them? I, I had a very fantastic life uh, until uh, I had this financial complicated problem which turned into a political problem because uh, I lost everything and there were people who were connected to the ruling system who were after me. They attacked me, they opened fire on me and I, and I managed to, to survive. And I, I told the security forces, I'm here to pursue my rights. And I told them that back in 2004, I had helped UK and American forces in Iraq. Back then, I, I There was an Iraqi uh, national, there was Iranian, Vietnamese and Albanian. We've heard that one of the men was a former policeman in Iran who had refused to carry out orders to shoot protesters. That's what we've heard. His argument was that if his claim for asylum in Rwanda was, was refused, ultimately he could be removed from Rwanda back to Iran, where he would face punishment for disobeying that order. Starting with some breaking news, government sources have confirmed that due to last-minute interventions by the European Court of Human Rights, all migrants have been removed from the plane in Wiltshire... You've been hearing just in the last half an hour the final step in what's been a descent to chaos of what has been called in the metro Rwandan air force. Matt, this is a story you've been following ever since it first really cropped up. Talk us through what the policy is and how it's come about. Yes, so back in April, Priti Patel flew to Kigali, the capital of Rwanda, to sign this memorandum of understanding with the Rwandan government to take some of our asylum seekers. The idea had been in train for at least a year in the Home Office, and they'd been in negotiations with a few countries. It was all very much kept as secret as they could, because every time that the media had got hold of a country that was talking to the Home Office, however advanced those talks, that government would then come out the next day and either deny it or cancel all the negotiations because of the stigma attached to such deals. Although we had actually revealed back in, I think it was August last year, we had revealed that Rwanda was talking to the UK government. It wasn't until Priti Patel actually landed in Kigali that the deal became publicly known. Thank you so much, Tsecho. Uh, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of Britain, has proposed a plan to send thousands of asylum seekers only one-way ticket from Britain to Rwanda. A £120 million investment in Rwanda's economic development will be part of that package. It was quite a whirlwind trip. She invited a few journalists on board to go to Kigali. We were on the ground there for 28 hours. We were taken to one of the accommodation centres where the migrants would be living while their asylum claim in, in Rwanda was assessed. What was that like? It was like a hostel and they'd be living there for about three months because that's the average sort of time that it takes to assess someone's asylum claim in, in Rwanda. And 
just talk us through how the policy would actually work. What exactly would it mean for, for people who came to Britain seeking asylum? So if you come across to the UK in an irregular route, so that would be across the channel in a small boat or in the back of a lorry and then claimed asylum. And if the UK deemed that you had come from a safe country, such as France, then they could deem your claim for asylum inadmissible. And then once they are removed from the UK, and that is the end of the UK's responsibility, and those individuals would be offered the chance to claim asylum in Rwanda. If they accept the claim for asylum, then they can stay in Rwanda for an initial five years. And this is quite a key question. If they're rejected, what happens if you do exhaust all your opportunities to stay in Rwanda? The government would pursue removal directions against you and you would therefore be removed to a country that the UK has no power over. And that brings into all kinds of questions over the prospect of that individual being removed to countries with very questionable human rights records and, and countries that the UK would never deal with directly. I think a lot of people, when the, the policy was first announced, thought that perhaps people were being sent to Rwanda while their asylum claims were being assessed. And then if they were valid, they would then be brought to the UK. But that's not the case. No, that's not the case. I mean, that was one of the options that was being looked into over the last year or two. That's in terms of offshore asylum processing. But this particular deal is removing people who've already been rejected for asylum or had or just not admissible to the asylum system. So these are people that the government defines effectively as illegal asylum seekers. How do they define that? Well, exactly. I mean, from the UN Refugee Convention 951, of which the UK is, is signed up to, anyone can claim asylum and an asylum seeker is an asylum seeker, whether a government likes it or not. So that is also another contentious issue when it comes to the legality of this policy but what the UK is saying is if you're claiming asylum, you should claim asylum in the first safe country you arrive in. If you're continuing your journey without claiming asylum in those journeys, then you are an economic migrant. What's the legal status on that? Are you allowed to move from one country to another, from one safe country to another to seek asylum? The European Union has in its uh, rules, you have to claim asylum in the first safe country. And if you do move to other countries, then you could be removed back to that original country, although in practice that doesn't work. Otherwise, countries like Italy and Greece would be taking the large majority of all asylum seekers in, in the EU. It's, mm. it's a very complicated part of international law and, and one that will be played out in the courts. And now that we've left the EU, do those rules no longer apply to us, even the, the idea that you have to stay in the first safe country you get to? It certainly does. Yes, that's right. It certainly doesn't. The Dublin Convention, uh, which governed the EU's asylum rules, doesn't apply to the UK anymore. So we're not in the in the clubs, let's say, where we can remove um, individuals back to France if, if we can prove that they did not claim asylum in, in France. And Matt, just stepping back, give us a sense of where the UK is in terms of asylum. The latest figures we have been given were up to the end of March this year, so in the 12 months to March, around 50,000 people claimed asylum in the UK. Three in four of all initial asylum claims were granted. So that does suggest that we are granting a lot of asylum claims. And we would question the argument from Home Office ministers that the vast majority of people coming across here are economic migrants. Coming up, the government find themselves at odds with the Church of England 
and the heir to the throne. But that's after an important message. Hello, my name is John Cantley. I came to Syria, where I was subsequently captured by the Islamic State. John Cantley sat in a darkened room, was the first of a series of seven such videos. Maybe I will live and maybe I will die. Last Man Standing, a new eight-part investigative series, begins this Friday, here on Stories of Our Times, with me, Anthony Lloyd, the war correspondent for The Times. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since this policy was announced, it's come in for quite a lot of criticism and from sort of unexpected quarters. Talk us through some of the interventions we've seen from the clergy, for example. Yes, well, uh, after the original deal was announced in Kigali, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, described the policy in his Easter sermon, no less, as uh, ungodly. Are such serious ethical questions about sending asylum seekers overseas. The details are for politics and politicians. The principle must stand the judgment of God, and it cannot. Because subcontracting out our responsibilities, even to a country that seeks to do well, like Rwanda, is the opposite of the nature of God, who himself took responsibility for our failures. That created a massive storm, and then all the bishops who sit in the in the House of Lords, 25 bishops, they wrote a letter to the Times describing it as immoral and a policy that shames the nation which was quite a strong intervention, to say the least. Then the Times revealed that even the Prince of Wales was privately opposed to the policy and had privately described it as appalling, especially given the fact that he's got to represent the Queen in Rwanda at the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, which is in Kigali itself. I mean, that really was quite a story. And it's an odd position to be in for a Conservative government to have both the church and even members of the royal family opposed to one of your key policies. Just talk us through how the government justifies it. What is their sort of explanation for why they want to pursue this policy? They see this policy as really quite important to dealing with what is a growing problem of people coming across the channel in small boats. So this year, already 10,500 people have crossed the channel and entered the UK via that journey, which is very dangerous. And the numbers um, are going up and up. So last year, 28,000 people arrived. The numbers this year are, are now forecast to, to be around 65,000. First of all, it's a very dangerous journey. So it's quite a miracle, actually, that uh, not more people have died. But in November last year, we learned the tragic news that 27 
migrants had, had, had drowned to death after their dinghy capsized. Loon Plage outside Dunkirk, part chemical industrial complex, part beach. The launching point yesterday for a tragedy resounding across Europe. 27 people dead, including seven women, one of whom was pregnant. Three children, two boys and a girl. But second of all, it's hugely damaging to the government's credibility on controlling the border. If if this number of people are able to come to the UK without prior authorization and, 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 and through this irregular route, and it's hugely damaging politically to the Conservative Party, amongst their own voters even, because Boris Johnson came to power pledging to take back control of the borders post-Brexit. I want to talk this morning about one particular uh, item on our agenda, which has been uh, raised by our constituents month in, month out for years, and that is the sight of people crossing the channel in unseaworthy vessels, risking their lives. And quite clearly, they don't have control of irregular migration in this way. So they see this as a crucial policy to deterring people from making that journey. So is this is this effectively a red meat policy? Is this sort of designed to appeal to conservative voters who might be wavering? Absolutely. And I think in red wall seats, it's particularly uh, popular policy. However, in the rest of the country, it's quite divisive, according to polls that we've seen. But David Canzini, the Boris Johnson's deputy chief of staff, has been really the driving force behind making sure this policy is not just announced, but also implemented, because he sees it as a what we call a wedge issue, one of those issues that really distinguishes the Conservatives from the Labour Party. One of the big criticisms that's come out of, of this policy really crystallises around that the point you, you made earlier, that if you are applying for asylum from Rwanda, you can't be sent back to Rwanda, which will make other people wonder whether anyone should be being sent to Rwanda right now. I mean, are there real fears about human rights issues in the country? Certainly. Although Rwanda is deemed a safe country by the UN, it is not necessarily a safe country for certain individuals. It is a dictatorship and the main political opponent in Rwanda is currently under house arrest. So political freedoms and press freedoms are very much curtailed in the country. The surprising thing is that this policy has actually been tried elsewhere already. I mean, I understand the Israelis tried sending people to Rwanda. How did that work out? Yeah, that deal was very much shrouded in in secrecy to start with. It was a very different kind of migration deal, but ultimately around 4,000 people were removed from Israel to Rwanda. All but a handful had actually fled the country or or left the country within a few months of arriving. In the end, it took the ECHR to step in and stop this flight from taking off last Tuesday. Just talk us through what the ECHR is, how it works and how it was set up and how we're a part of it. Yes, yeah, so it was the European Court of Human Rights that made the decision to grant the injunction. That court is the ultimate arbiter of the European Convention on Human Rights, which the UK played a key role in, in drafting. As a member of the Council of Europe in the 1950s, It was one of Winston Churchill's achievements to draft this treaty following the Second World War, which would force nations who signed up to it to keep to the obligations of protecting and upholding human rights. We've remained signatories to it ever since. We enshrined it into domestic law in the Human Rights Act in 1998. Since then, there have been on and off arguments, particularly amongst the Conservative Party, 
about whether we should remain signatories to the convention because it has curtailed many, many attempts by successive governments to remove foreign criminals, for example, to deny prisoners the vote, for example. So it's been a sort of thorn in the side of many governments ever since, but that's sort of its role. It's there to uphold human rights and protect individuals from governments. And there have been some people in the wake of all of this saying, we voted for Brexit, surely we shouldn't still be held to the rules of the ECHR. They've gone running away to the European Court of Human Rights. The good news, however, is that this now gives us the perfect excuse to leave it. Just to clarify there, I mean, you, this goes back to Churchill, this predates the EU. Yes, that's right. It's got nothing to do with the European Union. It does seem to have confused a lot of people. You know, this European Court of Human Rights, apparently nothing to do with the European Union, didn't really understand that until yesterday, something we've been part of for 50 years. Why don't we just leave it? What do you make of it, my friends? Tell us, 03444991000. How are European judges still able to rule over British law, even though we've left the European Union, but it's, it's really something completely separate? And you mentioned that some Tories now are very keen on pulling out. Okay, well, let's bring in Brendan Clark-Smith, Conservative MP, who's also in the studio to this debate this morning. Why are we still in the ECHR? There's a lot of very reasonable stuff there. So freedom of expression, right to a fair trial, and the kind of things that everyone really can, can agree with. Uh, but then since 1998, really, uh, we feel it's been kind of gold-plated uh, by this kind of uh, left-leaning woke judges, so to speak. So you, we want to take, take back control. Would you take Britain out of our agreement? Uh, I think this is the debate that we need to have. Is that where the government stands? No. So despite public statements to the contrary, the government privately has no intention of leaving the European Convention on Human Rights, not least because it would bring in huge problems with the Northern Ireland Peace Agreement. It's essential to upholding that. But it's certainly not unhelpful for the Conservative Party to have this big row about European judges. Now, Madam Deputy Speaker, I welcome the decisions of our domestic courts, the High Court, the Court of Appeal and Supreme Court to uphold our right to send the flight. However, following a decision by an out-of-hours judge in the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, minutes before our flight's departure, the final individuals remaining on the flight had their removal directions paused. It deflects from the failure, let's face it, of the Home Office and Priti Patel to enact one of the most controversial policies. For the government now, there was talk that this flight had been cancelled but they'd be preparing the next one. Is that likely to happen anytime soon? We don't think it's going to happen before the judicial review is going to be heard in July at the High Court. And we believe that we are fully compliant with our domestic and international obligations and preparations for our future flights and the next flights have already begun. Although Priti Patel was saying preparations were underway for the next flight, in reality, the Home Office have accepted that it would be a massive gamble to plan another flight before the judicial review is heard because it would risk the European Court intervening again to grant injunctions because now there's, there's a precedent set and, and, and I don't think even the UK courts could go against that either. So they don't want to risk spending another £300,000 on a flight that might be grounded again. And Dominic Raab actually is also, the Justice Secretary has also pretty much said that they won't try and put another flight before the judicial review. The deportations could have gone ahead. So are I you think, planning to sorry, send any I think more it's flights? Deeply, uh, look, of course, we'll adhere uh, to the, the legal um, uh, ruling. That but then that actually risks delaying the policy, not just for another month, but actually possibly for the remainder of this year, and maybe into next year, because the High Court will make a 
ruling at the end of July. If that was to go against the campaigners, against the policy, then they would be able to appeal the policy to the Court of Appeal, to the Supreme Court, and ultimately to the European Court. So that brings up the prospect of the flights not leaving until that whole legal process has been exhausted, and that's going to take months and months. Is this quite a difficult policy for Labour, though? Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper. It's not building consensus, it's just pursuing division. It is government by gimmick. Our country is better than this. We have a long tradition of hard work and stepping up to tackle problems, not to offload them, to tackle the criminal gangs who put lives at risk and to do right by refugees. That is what she should be doing now and not this shambles that is putting our country to shame. Are they able to object to it fully or, or is it quite difficult for them in terms of their own voter base? Yeah, you're totally right there. It's a very tricky subject. And that's exactly what the Tories are trying to exploit. The Tories, at least they can go to the doorstep and when they're asked about, well, there's this really big problem with people coming across the channel in small boats, they can point to tangible measures that they are taking. All the Labour's say at the moment is that they would pursue talks with France and other countries about signing up to an agreement, such as the one we had in the EU, where we could return migrants back to the country where they first landed. For the Tories, although the policy hasn't gone through and people haven't been sent to Rwanda, are they in quite a good position? Is it a win-win for them because they now have the ECHR to blame? Well, that, that's what I've, I was told by one Home Office civil servant, quite senior in the, in the department, that that was sort of the game all along. But I, I, I questioned the logic of that, actually, because as we get nearer and nearer to a general election, it's all very well blaming others and saying, well, we tried to do this, but the European courts stop this, etc., etc. But if you've been in power since 2010 and all you can say is to blame others, then I really don't think that's going to be bought by voters. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Times Home Affairs Editor, Matt Dathan. You can find all of Matt's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers today were Sam Chantarasak and James Shield, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you'd like to get in touch with us with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do drop us a line to stories of our times at thetimes.co.uk. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, 
plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.